0: We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, El Mani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, El Mani. This is a story that's told three times in the Bible. It's told in the book of Isaiah, it's told in the book of 2 Chronicles, and it's told in the book of 2 Kings. And I, I think I've mentioned to you before that if it's repeated, uh, it's because God wants to emphasize something. And you know, it's one thing having it repeated in the Gospels, we can kind of see that, and maybe in First and Second Kings, but then to find it again in Isaiah, I, I just want to say this, that I think it's something God really wants us to learn from so, um, I think the Holy Spirit just kind of said, Hey, slow down and meditate on these things because these are so important. And the Lord just kind of ministered to me. I want you to know them and I want the people there to know them. And if you have your handout, the Roman numeral number one is the commitment and commendation. The commitment on commendation from God on the life of Hezekiah. Cause, look what it says in verse one. It says, "Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was twenty-five years old when he began when he became king, and he reigned twenty-nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done." He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broken pieces of the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. And we see here, first of all, you know, God's commendation of Hezekiah. I mean, just, wow, great words because of his commitment to the Lord. You know, in verse 3, we see that it says, Hezekiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Even according to all his ancestor David had done, who had passed away 300 years earlier. I mean, this is a great compliment. It's a great commendation from God. And then verse 4 right here, look, it's a big verse, you guys. Look, it says that he removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars. Now this is huge. If you've gone through 1st and 2nd Kings, this is massive message for us. The high places were those places scattered throughout the land under many trees, on many hills, virtually every corner where the people built altars to sacrifice to their pagan gods. Now granted, some of those uh, high places during the good times of Israel were places where they did sacrifice to the Lord but those sacred altars were not supposed to be there. They were anti-scriptural. They were supposed to travel. The people were supposed to travel to the temple to offer sacrifices. And so, you know, Hezekiah removed the high places. He broke down the sacred pillars. And here's something that's so cool. You know, this right here is a step above. This is something that even the good kings of the past had not done. This right here is big time. It's complete commitment to God. This is not living on the curve of contemporary Christianity like everyone else is doing it in the church, so it's okay to do. This is, man, this is a guy who is sold out for the Lord. He broke down those high places. He took down those sacred pillars. And something we see, God, I believe, man, just wanting to bring us to that place. You know, a lot of people have the mentality, well, everyone else is doing it in church, so it's okay. And you got to know, uh, even though it was good while you were in school, oh, hey, the teacher's grading on a curve, right? No, that's not the way it is in the church. Hezekiah had come to his conclusion, and he acted accordingly. You know, I want to go through some scriptures with you just to kind of hammer home this message Beginning over in 1 Kings, if you would go back to 1 Kings chapter 3, and you guys know Solomon was a pretty good guy, and he actually started off pretty good, but look at uh, 1 Kings 3, in verse 3, it says, and Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. I mean, here was a guy you know had some good things that God said about him, but there were there's an area, there was an area of compromise in his life. If you go over to 1 Kings chapter 15 in verse 11, Asa, this guy was cool. He beat a million men one time through prayer. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. Right? And then we read in verse 14. Look at verse 14. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. But, you know, you see Solomon loved the Lord, but, you know, he still sacrificed in the high places. Asa was loyal to the Lord. He did what was right, but... He didn't remove the high places. If you go over to first Kings twenty two, in verse forty two, this guy Jehoshaphat says, And he walked in all the ways of his father Asa. He did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the Lord, in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. For the people offered sacrifices and burnt incense in the high places. I mean, it's like the Lord is just saying all these good things about them, but he did notice something. He did notice, and that's why he even wrote it down in the Bible. He did notice they didn't remove the high places. And these were good kings. If you go over to 2 Kings chapter 12, in verse 2, and three, it says, uh, Jehoash or Joash did what was right in the eye sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. But the high places were not taken away; the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And then, if you go over to Second Kings chapter fourteen, notice in verse four, it says, "However, the high places were not taken away." Regarding Amaziah, also known as Uzziah. And then if you go over to 2 Kings chapter 15, in verse 35, it says, However, the high places were not removed. The high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And this is in reference to the king named Jotham. And so, you know, I just want you to see it. You know, there's something good about just turning the Bible and looking at the scriptures yourself. Solomon, Asa, Jehoshaphat, you know, Jehoash, Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham. All of these were good kings, but God did notice. God did make a notation, a little asterisk beside their name, that they compromised in the area of forbidden high places. But Hezekiah didn't. You know, we read back, remember our scripture for today, Hezekiah, 2 Kings chapter 18 verse 4. Oh, it's so beautiful to read that he removed the high places. You know, and I read that right there and I tell you what, you know, as a man, as a man who wants to be a man of God, I just I'm so inspired, man. I get I get I get, you know, excited about this that this is God's calling on my life. I mean, he was radical, he was real, he was sold out, surrendered, completely committed. You know, and we're going to see later, even today, he's not perfect, no one is, but he is above and beyond the norm. He is above and beyond what we might consider to be the status quo of, you know, Christianity. You know, we read here in verse 4 that he removed the high places and, and also says, and he cut down the image, the wooden image. And that right there was the wooden image of the Canaanite goddess Asherah, which had to do with uh, sexuality or sensuality, uh, something that was a was a snare for the children of God. Um, you know, we see, you know, this uh, whole thing. And then the next thing we see is that it says right there, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Now this is interesting. We've never really read about them struggling with this. So we don't know if they had it, you know, in their possession the whole time or maybe they discovered it somewhere along the way. But when they did, when they had it here at this point we see what they were doing is they were offering sacrifices to it. We read here that Hezekiah broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Why? Because the people were worshipping it. Apparently this bronze serpent had been preserved somehow for more than 800 years. If you remember back in Numbers 21 verses 4 through 9 we had that account. The people of God. Remember what happened there, you guys, in Numbers 21, verse 4 through 9? They were complaining against Moses. They were complaining against God, right? And so, what ended up happening? As a result of that, God sent snakes, and the snakes bit them. People were dying. And so, they went back to Moses and they said, Hey, Moses, Pray for us. And so Moses prayed for them. And God said, okay, that's cool that you're praying for them. But this is what you need to do. You need to make a snake, a, brace, a brass and serpent. You lift it up on a pole. And you tell the people that if they look at it, at it, then they will be healed. Right? That's the story. Later, Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 14, that this was a typology of himself being lifted up on the cross and taking away our sins. And when we place our faith in Christ, then we are healed as well. And so, the bronze serpent on the pole was a good thing. You know, I don't know about you, but I would like to see it. I wonder what it looked like. I wonder what the pole looked like. I wonder what the snake looked like. That would be a trip. You know, most of us here, we probably would say, well, I would not worship it. It's just, a you know, like a relic. But you see what happens, you guys, with things like this, is there is that inclination. There is that temptation To begin to put life into these, you know, statues or whatever it is that you burn incense to. And God knows in your heart that you begin to worship it. It says right here that people were burning incense to it. You know, I remember before I was a Christian, I was Catholic. I used to burn incense to these things, right? What incense is symbolic of prayers, right? That's what we read in the scriptures. So they were praying to this thing. You know, and what we find just man unfortunately, because of the natural wicked tendency that we have is man, we just love to find something that we can latch onto that we can hold on to, and what we do is we we make that our God. you know even in the book of judges earlier, it's interesting the Israelites turned a ceremonial robe or ephod that Gideon made from the spoils of his victory into an idol. You read that in judges eight twenty five through twenty seven the Bible says they played a harlot with it and it became a snare to them. You know, what if, you guys, and I know people say we know where Noah's Ark is. Okay, cool. But what if we had it like right here in you know downtown LA or something, you know? I mean, there's probably a temptation or maybe Moses' rod or the Ark of the Covenant. You know, what if we had Jesus' crown of thorns or maybe even Jesus' cross to worship them, to see them as significant rather than the mere symbols that they really are? You know, I've seen people kneel down before crucifixes. I've seen people you know, burn candles to, you know, to these saints. And they think they know the Lord and they don't because God sees what that is. That's idolatry. That's a violation of God's commandment. We are not to make any images. And right here, God says that brass serpent, when, when it was time to clean house, man, Hezekiah got rid of it. And you shouldn't have Christians who have these statues at home that they say, oh, no, well, I'm not praying to them. Yes, you are. Get rid of it then. You don't need it. But the Lord knows, you see. I think this is important for us. You know, we read in verse 5 here that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him there was none like him among all the kings. And that right there is a huge thing, huh? You're like, well, you know, I'll just compromise a little here and a little there. And then you read someone like Hezekiah, and you're like, no, I don't want any of that. You know, he trusted in the Lord. And I just read that right there, and I just think, man, what a commendation. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the Bible. What about your life? What if the Lord said that about you? You know, he said that you were sold out and surrendered. You know, isn't it what we want? No one like him before. No one like him after. Not that we're competing, but man, we want to be that type of person, right? Uh, Job was another man with that type of categorical commendation. In Job chapter 1 verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? I mean, think about that. Wow! There is none like him on the earth, blameless, upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. How can that happen? How can I be like Hezekiah? How can I be like Job? And one of the things we see is right here, the Lord says, you got to remove the high places. Get rid of it. Go above and beyond the norm of common Christianity. Cut down the wooden sexual images. In this case, break any pieces, break into pieces any and every idol You know, people or things you pray to are put in the place of God. You know, we read something else in verse 5 that to me I think is key. Notice it says right there, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. The Hebrew word, batak, is found 120 times. And it means to have confidence in, security in, even to feel safety in. And what we find, you guys, trust is huge. Trust is a must. We must trust in the Lord and only Him, only Him, only Him. Have confidence in Him. Find security in Him. Feel safe in Him. And Him and Him alone. You know, something that's interesting is that Hezekiah and Job were so highly commended by God and they both totally trusted God. You know, here we read this about Hezekiah. Later in Job, chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So let me ask you a question tonight. When does your trust in God end? When does your trust in God end? You know, hopefully the answer is never and under no circumstances. Well, when I lose my job, then I won't trust in God anymore. When I lose my family... I won't trust in God anymore. When I lose my finances, I won't trust in God anymore. When I lose my physical health, I won't trust in God anymore. Job lost all of that, but like Hezekiah, he trusted in the Lord. And and what we find as we read the Bible, these things are written not just for our information, but for our transformation. This is written to teach us that no matter what we're going through and no matter what we will go through, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him and only him. See, we have to have that. You know, I think I've mentioned to you guys before about the 1988 Winter Olympics, and they actually featured uh, there's a show on television that featured blind skiers being trained for slalom skiing. You know, and I know that sounds weird, huh? Blind skiers, you know, being trained for slalom skiing. And what what they did to train them, however, was they paired them with sighted skiers, skiers that could see, and they were taught, first of all, in the flats, how to make the right and left turns. When that was mastered, they were then taken to the slopes where their sighted partners skied beside them, shouting, left, right, you know, left, right. And as they simply obeyed the commands, they were then able to negotiate the course and cross the finish line, depending solely on the sighted skier's word. You see, the way it worked for them, it was either total trust or complete catastrophe. You see, and it's a picture for us as Christians. In the world, in one sense, in and of ourselves, I can't see around the corner. I can't see tomorrow. I don't know all any of that, but I tell you what the Lord does. You don't, know, you don't know tomorrow. Your friends don't know tomorrow. Your pastor doesn't know tomorrow. Nobody does, but the Lord does. And so I tell you what, when I walk and when I go down the slopes of life, you know who I'm listening to, I'm listening to the one who sees. My trust is in Him. Your trust must be in Him. We're blind. We can't see, but God can. And if you put your trust in Him, and if you listen to Him, then i tell you what, you're going to make it down that finish line, and you're going to finish first. And there's this, cor- this poem we have. Trust Him when dark doubts assail thee. Trust Him when thy strength is small. Trust Him when to simply trust Him seems the hardest thing of all. Trust him, he is ever faithful. Trust him for his will is best. Trust him for the heart of Jesus is the only place of rest. You guys remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with most of your heart, right? (laughs) Trust in the Lord. I'm so glad you guys know this verse with all of your heart. Are you living it? I know it. Are you living it? That's all that matters. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. You got to trust the Lord. You know, that type of trust explains what we read here in verse 6. It says, For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following Him, but kept His commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. You know, a lot of people, I mean, how many of you know people who, you know, who they've let go? They have let go of God. They're no longer walking with God the way they should or even at all. They are not holding, like we read here, fast to the Lord. To hold fast means to be fastened to the Lord, to hold tight to Him. You know, Deuteronomy ten twenty it says you shall fear the Lord your God you shall serve Him and to Him ye shall hold fast and take oaths in His name. Joshua twenty two five says but take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses the servant and Lord commanded you to love the Lord your God to walk in all His ways to keep His commandments which really means simply to hold fast to Him and to serve Him with all your heart. And all your soul. And of course, holding fast to God is really holding fast to the things of God, especially the Word of God. You gotta hold fast to the Word of God. First Corinthians 15, 2 says that we are to hold fast to the Word of God, the gospel of God. First Thessalonians 5 21 says, Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Second Timothy one thirteen, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The book of Hebrews is filled with people who did not hold fast. They were not holding fast, they were drifting away from God. And so in Hebrews chapter three, verse six, and four, verse fourteen, and ten twenty-three, he tells them, Hold fast to God. In the book of Revelation 2, when The Lord is speaking to the churches in verse 13. He tells them to hold fast. Chapter 2, verse 25, hold fast. Chapter 3, verse 3, hold fast. And in the church of Philadelphia, which church we are, which is the faithful church in the last days, Jesus said in Revelation 3.11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. And I don't know if we know what it means to hold fast, to hold tight, to never let go. But there is that temptation, and I've seen it, and to be honest with you, sometimes I think, not that person, no, Lord, not that person. What ends up happening is they get hit hard. Our enemies are doing everything they can so that we would simply let go of God. Here we read that Hezekiah held fast, and in doing so, it's kind of cool. Look what happens there in verse uh, 7. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, which is pretty cool. And rebelled against the king of Assyria, and he did not serve him, and he subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. See, in holding fast, he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and he was supposed to. In holding fast, he became a fighter, and he subdued the Philistines even as far as Gaza, which was an incredible thing. All the territory that God had for Israel, he was gaining ground. You know, and there's authority we need to claim as Christians over Assyrians. And there is territory that we need to claim as Christians way deep into the land of the Philistines. Because that belongs to us. It's our God-given authority and territory. But all this is found only when we trust in the Lord. You know, some might wonder, well, how can I get a heart like Hezekiah How can I be the real deal and truly trust the Lord and you know, throw out the things that need to be gone and put on the Lord Jesus Christ? And of course, I would encourage you to get to know God by studying His Word. Don't just know the book. Know the author of the book. Once you know Him, you'll love Him. And once you love Him, you'll obey Him, trust Him, and hold fast to Him. But I'll tell you what, there are a couple of practical things that undoubtedly contributed to the heart of Hezekiah. Number one, when you study his life, you realize that he was a contemporary of Isaiah. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. As a matter of fact, we're going to see their interaction, Lord willing, next week. If we're here, we're going to see he went, he sent a message to Isaiah. You know, and undoubtedly having a man of God in your life, like Isaiah, a prophet of the Lord, was something that God would use in his life to make him that man of God. You know, G. Campbell Morgan, he said, It's remarkable that such a man as Hezekiah could be the son of Ahaz, who was a very ungodly father. Yet, we must remember that all his life, he was under the influence of Isaiah. And so, one thing that contributed is the influence of the prophet Isaiah. Another thing that undoubtedly contributed is the judgment of the people of Israel. The judgment of the people of Israel. Now, We move now to the second Roman numeral, and that is the captivity. Because look at verse 9. After the commendation, after the commitment of Hezekiah, we see the captivity of Israel. It says, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it in the sixth year of Hezekiah. That is, the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Halah, by the river Habar by the river Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. Because, and here's the reason, they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. You see, the sad fate of the northern kingdom was a valuable lesson to Hezekiah. He saw firsthand what happened when the people of God rejected God and his word and worshipped other gods. You know, remember, we're talking about the two kingdoms here, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And while he's king in 722 BC, he sees the Assyrians come and take away, take away the people of God. He sees that with his own eyes. It happens during his reign. And we studied this a couple of weeks ago in chapter 17. It's just devastating what the Assyrians did. I think we might even have a map to show you how far away they were transported. It was the Assyrians' policy to deport conquered people to other lands, which would destroy their sense of nationalism and make them easier to control. And when you study the Assyrians, they practice incredible cruelty, they would first maybe gouge out an eye or cut off a limb. They would put hooks in your mouth and carry you away a captive. They would often decapitate heads, literally taking a head count. They would make massive mounds with these heads for intimidation. Or they would carry, especially the archers, they would carry the heads in triumph. There are actually many archaeological discoveries For the nation of Israel that reveal all these things and have the nation of Israel in their chronicles. You see, Hezekiah saw all this. And as we see, and here's the thing, you guys... As we see the devastation of sin all around us, the drinking, the drugs, the divorce, the death, the confusion, the addictions, the incarceration, the selfishness, the foolishness, lies without purpose, lies without peace, without truth, and therefore without true love, it should awaken us as well. When you see the calamity that happens sometimes even to the people of God you know me as a pastor you know seeing another pastor fall into sexual sin seeing the devastation it brings to his family and to his flock to himself it awakens me it frightens me and it drives me to God you see and Hezekiah here he saw what happened to the northern kingdom and I think we learn from his commitment and I think we learn from Others, captivity. You know, we're reminded of the reason why they were taken away. There in verse 12, it says, Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God. They transgressed his covenant, and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. You know, it's so simple. It got so bad that we read here, look at the end of the passage, that verse right there, that they would neither hear nor do them. And it got so bad, they didn't even want to hear it. I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't even want to hear it. But that's not you, huh? Because you're here to hear. You guys are here on a Thursday night. I think we learn from the commitment and commendation. I think we learn from the captivity. And then the last thing, we're going to learn from the compromise even. Because look at uh, verse 13. It says and in the 14th year of king Hezekiah Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah okay now he's coming against Judah the southern kingdom and took them Then Hezekiah king of Judah sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish saying I have done wrong turn away from me whatever you impose on me I will pay and the king of Assyria addressed Hezekiah king of Judah through assessed him I'm sorry 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold so Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Hezekiah, you know, he was, he was real. He was radical. He was so right on. But, and and I don't know if you guys know this or not, but as I mentioned to you earlier, he wasn't perfect. Did you guys know that no one's perfect except the Lord? Do you guys know that? How many of you say amen to that? Yeah, he's not perfect. I am, but not them. you You know, I think we read this section, and I think it sort of highlights his imperfection. You know, just in case there are any here tonight who are keenly aware of their imperfections, just in case there are any here tonight who have failed the Lord somehow and you're perhaps being bombarded with the lie that, you know what, you're just too far gone, God can't work and do through someone like you, I think there's a message here for us. You know, here's this guy we're talking about, he's so right on, but look, there's a lapse in his faith, big time, right? Right? And although I would never condone sin or belittle it, I must admit, I commit it. And now we see, so did Hezekiah and Uriah, David and Daniel, Joseph and Job and so many others, Elijah and Elisha, Peter and Paul, they all sin too. How do I know that? Because the Bible says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. The only one who did not sin was Jesus, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he knew no sin. And here's Ezekiah. And what we find is that his faith is tested. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, comes against him. He takes all the fortified cities of Judah. All that was left was Jerusalem. And so this is about five years after the fall of Samaria. But what we find, and we're going to see this, Lord willing, if we're still here next week, we're going to see the amazing victory through this man who had a major lapse of faith. He failed, kind of like Peter who denied the Lord. And then when he was baptized with the Spirit, he was used in such a mighty way. This is what happened with Hezekiah. Did you guys know that God can make winners out of sinners? Do you guys know that? The Bible is filled and flooded with examples like this man here. Here in verse 13, they mention this place, Lachish. And it's important historically, because this is about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem, and archaeologists have discovered a pit there with 1,500 bodies. What had happened was the king of Assyria had taken the other fortified cities of Judah, and he just wiped them out. He wiped them out. He brought them out. He put them in the pit. He killed them. Hezekiah saw this thing, and there's no doubt he knew about all this. And so what ends up happening is he loses heart, he surrenders to the Assyrians. And he tells them, Oh, man, I messed up by rebelling against you, and you know, turn away from me. Whatever you impose, I'll I'll pay. And, And basically, there was clearly a lack of faith on his part. He felt it wiser to pay off the Assyrian king and become his subject than it was to trust God. You see. And here's the thing, and we'll close with this. You know, later on, God would tell the Jews to surrender to Babylon, right? But not here. God never told him to surrender, but he did anyways. And so someone says, well, how can you know what to do? You got to talk to God. You got to know your word. You've got to have a personal relationship with him. There's a lot of people, they're making decisions. They never heard a word from God. You've got to hear the voice of God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. Otherwise, if you start doing things and making decisions based on fear or danger or foolishness, then you're going to find yourself doing things that will bring reproach to God. You've got to hear his voice. See? See? And what we find right here is that through prayer and the word, we get our marching orders from God. It's there we discover what's right in his sight, congregationally, individually. Should I raise the white flag? Should I throw in the towel? The Lord is the one who tells you. What ends up happening is Hezekiah jumped the gun when he should have shot his gun, man. You see, the devil deceives you into thinking that if you take his advice and crumble under his pressure, that all your problems will go away. You know, Hezekiah thought, well, if I make this compromise, and all my problems go away. Oh no, bro, let me tell you, man, it's just beginning. So now you're giving the devil the authority over you? Oh, guess what happens, man? He's going to grow bold in your life. Because you're not following the Lord, you're following the enemy. Hezekiah gives him 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. That's a lot. It includes all the silver in the house of the Lord and the king's house. And then Hezekiah strips all the gold from the doors of the temple and he thinks he's done with the king of Assyria, but he's not done. It's just beginning. You see, the king of Assyria, the devil, will never be content. And this is why we cannot compromise with him or negotiate with the enemy as Hezekiah did. But the cool thing is he will learn from his mistake. And the next time around, if we're here, Lord willing, next year we're going to see that he fights. He fights because he hears the marching orders of the Lord. He believes and prays. He receives God's promise, and through prayer and the promises, he then experiences God's power. And so I pray, you guys, as we read this, I know when I read it, I said, Lord, this is so cool. I know you're speaking to me. You want me to learn from his commitment and commendation. You want me to learn from their captivity. And you want me even to learn from this compromise right here. You know, I don't want to compromise, but when I do and if I fail, I do thank God that he is the God of the second chance. Don't lose heart. God can still do a great work. We don't have to compromise. Why? Because we have victory in Christ. Someone once said, I understand you have victory over the devil. He said, no, I don't have victory over the devil. I have the victor over the devil. Why? Because <laughs> we have Jesus, right? Watch real quick. Go over to Colossians chapter 2. And I can go a little over because I started late. That's, that's the rule. You guys, it's in our bylaws. So Colossians, Colossians 2. Look what it says in verse 13. Because I just want you guys to know, you don't have to lay down. You don't have to suffer defeat. We have been given the victory in Christ. Look what it says here in Colossians 2 verse 13. And you, speaking to Christians, being, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I just love that. Having disarmed the Assyrians, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. You see, and you got to know what Paul's writing about right here, because what he's trying to say is that you don't have to walk around as a defeated disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are, we, we fight from victory, not for victory. I mean, you know, the handwriting requirements taken out of the way, nailed to the cross. In those days, if you were a prisoner, they would nail your, you know, your sentence to your door, and then they would take you out, stand before the judge, and then they would bring your sentence to the judge. And and what we find the, Paul is saying is that your sentence was taken to the judge, and Jesus stamped that sentence, and he said, To telestai, it is finished, debt paid in full. And then you would take that, that handwriting of ordinances that was against you, and you take it with you. And wherever you go, the you know, authorities, hey, you're you know, you're a guy you stole bread. You know what? Debt paid in full. And they would break it out because that's what Jesus has done for us. But not only that, this is not just a squeak you know, by victory. This is such a great victory that what we find that Paul was saying here is the Romans, they had a custom that when a Roman general would go away to war, if he was victorious, they would then return and celebrate in the streets of Rome. And here's how they would celebrate. Uh, a herald or a preacher would come out and he would cry and he'd say, you know, go tell the people, Rome has won. Rome has won. He was called the Herald. Remember, they didn't have CNN or television or, you know, telephones back then. They needed to get the word out. The runner would go out. The Herald would go out. Rome has won. And then everyone would gather together in the main streets of Rome. And what they would find is the Roman celebration is they would have the chariot with the victorious general, and he would be you know, traveling through the streets, right? And guess what? Tied to that chariot was the defeated general. He would be tied to the chariot and dragged through the streets of Rome naked. His glorious uniform stripped from him. His medals gone. He was defeated and humiliated, dragged through the dust. And here's what Paul says about the enemy. This is what Jesus has done for us, you guys. And so I I think what the Lord wants to communicate to us is, you know, Jesus has won, (laughs) meaning the enemy is defeated, and there's no need to compromise or raise the white flag or surrender in any way to Satan. And so the next time the enemy comes at you and he he, reminds you of your past, Remind him of his future. (laughs) To say, I already saw you, man. You're tied to the chariot. You're stripped. You're humiliated. You're defeated. Be gone. That's what Jesus said to the devil. Get behind me. Go away. And the devil had to flee. What does the Bible say? Resist him. And what does he do? He runs away. He runs away from you. Why? Because you are God's children. And we have the victory in Christ. You know, the next time the enemy comes and tempts you to surrender, remember, that's the only way he can win. That's the only way he can win is if you let go. I'm not going to hold fast to God anymore. doesn't matter if you've blown it. doesn't matter, man. It's not a 12-step reconciliation with God. It's a one step. You get right with the Lord right now. And you determine in your heart, like Daniel did, purpose in my heart, not to defile myself. And you watch what God does. Remember, that's the only way he can win is if we surrender. And so God, help us by his strength to win over sin. God, help us by his grace to be wise and in a real and radical way, refuse to compromise. Lord, we just come before you tonight thanking you so much for your word, for your love and your grace. Lord, I thank you for the lessons, Lord, we learn in the commitment and commendation, Lord, of Hezekiah, and even the calamity of Israel. And Lord, even the compromise of this king, it gives hope to me, Lord. It gives hope to me to know that you are the God of the second chance. Help me, Lord God, to clean house. Help me, Lord God, to get rid of any high places or sacred pillars or any wooden images, Lord. Anything, Lord, any nehushtans that might be in my life. And that can be a person, that can be a place, that can be a possession, that can be a position. Lord, I don't want to trust in Egypt, but I want to trust in you. And so tonight I pray that all of us, we would lean on you, Lord. And I just ask God that you move in us. And Lord, for um, the believers here today, strengthen our faith. And Lord, if there are any who don't know you, who are not Christians, I pray that today would be the day of salvation if you're here today and you don't know Christ if you're here and you don't know where you go if you were to die today heaven is for real and so is hell but Jesus came to die for your sins and all you have to do is turn from your sin and trust in Christ and make Him the Lord and Savior of your life and if you want to do that if you want to follow Christ then right where you're at you just pray this prayer I say, Dear Lord, forgive me of my sins. Tonight I turn from my sins, and I trust you. Jesus, be the Lord and Savior of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, and help me to live life as a Christian from this day forward. In Jesus' name. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel, El Monte at air code 626 3414 Remember that Jesus loves you.